Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, and sharing. Please make sure that you hit me up if you have any suggestions for guests that we should have on. Our next week's show is going to be so dope. We have Susan Kalechi Watson on the show. But this week's show, we have elections guru Tom Bonnier. But before I get to Tom, who will give us an election debrief, I wanted to talk about y'all's president and this transfer of power or lack thereof and making sense of the president and Republicans' most recent attempts to undermine our elections and our democracy. So everyone, including President Trump and congressional Republicans, know that Trump lost. They also know that these legal challenges to the election results are bogus. The president also won't concede he lost, and his administration won't be helpful in facilitating a transition with the Biden-Harris team. So the first question is, why are they doing this? The answer is quite simple. It's Georgia. The balance of the Senate and the effectiveness of a Biden-Harris administration hinges on Georgia, and Republican success in Georgia will be based on whether or not the president's supporters come back out to vote. Republicans know that we know the balance of the Senate is everything, and Democrats are motivated to flip Georgia and the Senate. And the only way to combat Stacey Abrams and the momentum that Georgia Democrats have right now is to have the Trumpers in Georgia foaming at the mouth. And what keeps them foaming at the mouth? The belief that the election results aren't final, that this election isn't over, and that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. If their leader tells them it's all over, they won't come out in January. And if they stay home, Republicans lose the Senate. So they fight on the lie. Now, what does that mean for us? And what do we have to do about this? Well, the only thing in our control right now is Georgia. That means making donations to group like Fair Fight, the Democratic Party of Georgia, the Ossoff and Warnock campaigns and organizations like the New Georgia Project and the Black Voters Matter Fund. That means volunteering, making calls, texting, and calling every single human you know in Georgia and making sure they vote in the runoff. As I've said before on this show, we're in the smash and grab portion of this presidency. Get used to firings and mass resignations. Get used to lies from Republicans about a Trump second term. There will be no concession speeches, and he will not cooperate with the Biden transition. And we should expect this through the runoff. The best way for us to push back is to win in Georgia in January. We've been through almost four years of this nightmare. We only have 69 days left, so buckle up. But we'll be all right. And that's that on that. Today's guest is Tom Bonnier, the CEO of the analytics firm Target Smart and an adjunct professor at Howard University. His Twitter account is so dope. It's at T-B-O-N-I-E-R, T-Bonnier. It's a must follow for all things elections. We'll talk exit polls, the blue wave that wasn't, and we'll put to bed the idea that Black Lives Matter and defund the police were why Democrats underperformed in this cycle. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did with my conversation with Tom. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. 
I'm not jogging. I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. So ladies and gentlemen, I have a special guest today. He literally has the dopest Twitter handle, Twitter feed on the Twitter, Tom Bonier. Did I get that right, Tom? <laughs> it's close enough. Bon- I-, I say Bonier, Bonier works. Bonnier. Okay. Like <laughs> Bonnier also. We go, it's French. Don't worry. I, you know, Bacari, I get it mauled often. Baracari, oh, Bacardi, everything. But look, I, I am so appreciative of the work that you've been doing this election cycle. I just started following you a few uh, weeks, if not months ago, um, leading up to this election. And you and Ron Brownstein and Dave Wasserman and a few others just, you know, just kind of unfiltered got us to the facts. But as I start all my interviews with my guests, I want you to walk me through the arc of your career from your first campaign to the work you're doing now with Target Smart. How did you get into democratic politics? Uh, I got into democratic politics basically just growing up in a very political family, like very progressive. My, my, both my parents were, were children of the 60s and were taking us to, to demonstrations in Massachusetts. I remember Vice President George Bush visiting my town and like standing out with signs and trying to figure out what it was all about. So I came to school in DC, American University in, in the early 90s, where it all happens, and uh, immediately got an internship with my congressman, Marty Meehan from Massachusetts, and uh, just sort of went from there. Ended up working in a, a political action committee called NCEC, sort of the 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 grandfather of, of progressive political data analysis. And the uh, cool thing about that job was our work was done when everyone else was getting really busy. Our work was done about two months before election day because all the data was out there in the field. So I would take leaves of absence and just go out and work on campaigns. So oh, wow. I had the opportunity to go out and work on campaigns uh, all over the country. But the one thing that I felt guilty about is I was the one person who had a job after election day. Uh, <laughs> So, so yeah, so I sort of bounced around and, and, uh, and that landed me at Target Smart. Uh, you know, the, the, what is, what is Target Smart? What exactly is it? Most people don't know. Target Smart's been around since 2006. Uh, it's the democratic data entity on the Dem progressive side. So we do work with the Democratic National Committee, state Democratic parties, direct with candidates, labor unions, progressive orgs, the super PAC sort of. All across the board, we build and maintain a national voter file, a file of every American voter and then even those who aren't voters, but we have history on. So we're, we're the sort of the big data on the Dem side. How many law are y'all over there? About 100. Oh, wow. Are y'all, take, are, y'all t- are y'all taking interns? Because people listen to this show. I have so we many are. people die. Yeah, okay. absolutely. We're, we're, we're the one thing I'm always proud of, I joined Target Smart in, in 2015. The company's been around since 2006. So one thing I'm perhaps proudest of is we don't do that sort of cyclical hiring thing. We're not laying people off after election cycle. We're always trying to invest in talent and grow talent. So we're always looking for interns. Definitely. So yes, well, please. my HBCU students target smart. Let's, let's go ahead and get that lined up. So let's talk about last week. Um, so let's get into the election based on the information we have now. There were a lot of hopeful Democrats last Monday, November 2nd, but as the results came in, we saw record Republican turnout and democratic campaigns that were caught off guard. Why didn't we see the blue wave that so many people were expecting? 
Well, that's really what we're digging into now. And, you know, the not satisfying answer first is we don't know everything yet. What mm-hmm. we'll need to do is look at individual vote history as all these states report back who voted. And that'll take months. Some states have done it already. It'll go on over the next few months. So it's going to take a while to answer that completely. That said, we have a pretty huge data set that we've already dug into where we have a lot of answers beginning to emerge that we can talk about. You know, the number one thing that everyone's talking about now is polling. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, you know, because we saw these polls that we're predicting that blue wave. You talk about it. it no, I have like some. There's some polls out there to say I look like Michael B. Jordan. I think those polls are accurate. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe some of those are right. <laughs> uh, you don't have to unskew those polls, but the rest, <laughs> most of them have problems. Right. I mean, they led us to believe that it would be a much earlier night, you know, that we wouldn't still be sitting here. I mean, obviously, we know know who, who won, at least, you know, everyone who doesn't live at 1600 Avenue, Pennsylvania Avenue knows who won. But look, it was a lot closer. And then when you look down ballot, you look at the Senate, Democrats were favored to take back the Senate. And now we're left with a situation where we need to pick up two seats in Georgia just to get to a tie. So, you know, what happened there? Totally in the weeds, and I'm not going to go that deep into it. But the problem is, it appears like we saw how the president told all his supporters to not vote by mail, right? And most of his supporters followed him. They said, mail is fraud. We're not going to vote by mail on election day. And what we saw, it wasn't that Republicans didn't vote by mail. They did. It's just the Republicans who did vote by mail were more likely to vote Democratic than those Mm -hmm. who didn't. Same thing with this polling, or at least that's what it appears to be at this point. The president, as we've seen for the last four or five years, has been ranting against polling and saying polling's fake news, don't believe the polls. And it seems to have had this effect where his most ardent supporters are the ones who are less likely to take polls. So it's not that Republicans aren't participating in these polls. It's that the Republicans who are, are more likely to vote Democratic. And so that gives you, and look, if there's not one answer. A big part yeah. of this is turnout. It's hard to predict turnout. So you're talking about that. Are you, is the shy Trump voter, is that a thing? <sighs> I, I Maybe, maybe. I I mean, the shy Trump voter, when that term originally came up, the theory was that Trump voters would take the polls and they would intentionally lie to pollsters. That was the shy Trump voter. There's no evidence of that. There's a different kind of shy Trump voter, which means maybe they're so shy they won't even take the poll. The pollster calls and they just say, you're fake news. I'm not taking it. So listen, I've always, I, I used to get a kick out of this trivia question. And I would always say that you would be surprised that the highest vote getters in the history of the United States were a black man and a woman. Cause you would have uh, Barack Obama, Barack Obama, and then Hillary Clinton as the three highest vote getters in the history of this country. But now Joe Biden's number one with over 75 million. It looks like president Trump will end up with the second most votes in American history. What surprised you most about the Republican turnout and what should we make of this Republican turnout? Is it a Trump phenomenon as we look into the off-year elections in 2021 and midterms in 2022? Well, I, I think just the, the scale of that Republican turnout, because he had pushed all his supporters to the point where, look, Democrats built up this advantage in the early vote, as we all talked about. I talked about this a lot in the weeks leading up. Democrats had about six weeks of early voting to hit those historic numbers. Republicans were pushed into one day and it seemed really unlikely that if you're given just that one day, you're going to be able to keep up and match those numbers. And, you know, the evidence now is they did that. I think that was the biggest surprise. I mean, beyond that, there's some other surprises we're seeing in the data, especially 
you know, as we dig in in Southwest Texas and we see what happened there with Latino voters and the, and the fact that they swung so heavily to Trump. You know, Southern Florida, I think, was less of a surprise, given that we know the Cuban and Venezuelan voters have had more of a history of voting Republican. Mm -hmm. But those are the big surprises. I think going into 2022, challenge for the Republicans is they've become a party entirely of and about and by Donald Trump. And so where is he in 2022? And to what extent is he working on their behalf and energizing voters? Because they had that problem in 2018. He wasn't on the ballot. And many of his voters who came out in 2016 didn't come out in 2018. And that was a big part of the blue wave. Don't get me wrong. Another big part of the blue wave was Democrats coming out at record levels. But you put those two together. Yeah. Uh, and that was problematic for the Republicans. So that leads me to my question about Georgia. What's your read on the January runoffs, particularly what happens with Republican turnout and how much of a deficit are Warnock and Ossoff working from to pull off a victory? Well, you know, I would say Georgia is one of the more pleasant surprises uh, from a Democratic perspective, looking at uh, this election and these election results. Now, again, the polls showed that we had a really good opportunity there uh, presidentially. But, but Georgia is Georgia, right? There's still a lot of deeply red areas in that state. When you look at the areas nationally that swung the most to mm -hmm. Democrats between 16 and 20, I looked at the top 20 counties by this metric. Six of them are in Georgia. Uh, there are these suburban counties, most of them in metro Atlanta, large counties, uh, big vote share. And these are the areas that Trump has had the biggest problems in. And that swing was a huge part of why he lost. And then just, you know, record setting turnout from African-American voters, Latino yeah. voters, and then Asian-American Pacific Islander voters. And Native American voters, what we saw along the bottom part of Arizona. Um, yes. We saw Navajo uh, Indian voters come out in huge numbers. Yeah, not 90 percent in some of those communities, which is which is amazing and broke all records. So, you know, the outlook for these runoff elections, there is absolutely a, an opportunity for Democrats to take both of them. But the question will be for both sides when you look at that turnout. Turnout will obviously be lower than what we saw last week, but it's going to be higher than we've ever seen in a runoff election in Georgia. The challenge for both sides will be how do you get a larger share of your people who came out last week out again in January, in that January 5th election. I think that's what it'll all be about. It'll be about mobilization. So you talked earlier about the election day versus uh, mail-in and early voting. What do we know about the profiles of Democratic voters that vote early versus those that vote on election day? And what do we do? What do our campaigns need to do in order to ensure that we don't lose election day as badly as we have been losing them in the past two presidential election cycles? So traditionally, and I mean before this year, which is obviously unusual, the early vote used to always be older, whiter, more Republican. And then this year with all the changes and then the president really, uh, you know, poisoning the idea of voting by mail among his supporters, it changed radically, right? So we saw Democrats winning substantially. But even among those Democrats, to your question, who were voting before Election Day, they did tend to be a bit older, younger people, younger Democrats were more likely to come out on Election Day. Uh, voters of color were slightly more likely to come out on Election Day. Uh, those are the biggest differences at this point. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you look at the Democrat constituencies, there's this sort of emerging more of a swing constituency of college educated white voters, and they were the ones who were much more heavily involved in the vote by mail in the early voting. So your question in terms of 
how do you change that going forward? Well, one big question will be, how do these election officials, you know, to what extent do they maintain? A, a lot of these states actually pass laws to, mm-hmm. to, to, to make universal vote by mail, that sort of thing. And there's every reason to believe those will continue. But the system is the biggest part of it. And then, you know, look, I think Democrats are going to learn from this and figure out a way to find that balance, because traditionally Democrats did better on Election Day. We were the ones who were out there in the field. Now, this election was different and Democrats weren't out for the most part organizing at the doors in person because of the pandemic. You know, ideally, that won't be a problem. Uh, <laughs> knock on wood come next year. And, and, and Democrats will be able to bring that advantage back to bear in the midterm elections. So that actually, this is one of my theories that that some Democrats push back on tremendously. But you're a campaign guy, so it's you're someone I think will acknowledge and appreciate this. But how much or what value did we lose by not knocking on doors? You know, we abandoned the traditional door to door canvassing, um, and I think that hurt people. Those fundamentals hurt people in bringing out our our voters. How much of a difference do you think this decision ultimately made with Democratic turnout? You know, I talked to David Axelrod about it. He said that that would have been a clash of messaging and the COVID messaging that the president had, and it turned out to be a net plus for him. But on the ground, I think we lost a lot of traction by not having that on the ground, grassroots, door-to-door canvassing. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, if you believe that door-to-door, person-to-person organizing works, which all of the political science literature on this, all the experience shows that it does, right? If it didn't, we wouldn't be doing it. If you believe it works, then you also have to believe that there was some negative impact, right, by not doing that. And I don't say that in the sense of being critical of the campaign, you know, personally, not that that matters. I feel like it was the right decision. But I think Mm -hmm. they also knew that they were likely paying a price. I do think that the pivot to more early voting mitigated that Mm -hmm. uh, significantly, because instead of, again, having that one day you have the ability to keep coming back to your target voters over the course of six weeks. So you try to push that target voter out because we have a very good sense of who the target voters are. And that person goes out to vote and they see an eight hour line, which is what people were dealing with in many of these communities. And they don't have a job that allows them the luxury Mm -hmm. of sitting in line for eight hours. So they can go back the next day, the next day, the next day. So, and, and through online organizing, texting, that sort of thing, I think they were able to mitigate that where Realistically, while I think it had an impact, a negative impact, I don't think it was nearly as significant if this Mm. was a, quote, normal election. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, 
NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. I know you've been following the House Democrats now public spat about why so many House Democrats found themselves in a tougher than expected race. What happened with so many swing districts this cycle and why were so many House Democrats caught off guard? Did the D-trip fail here? So this is like the big argument, right? And it's one of my pet peeves that, you know, election night happens and then we all want to rush to a conclusion immediately. And that's what happened, right? We heard a lot of people in the the reports from the Dem caucus saying that uh, the reason that we lost these seats was because of the Black Lives Matter movement and specifically around defund the police, right? I think that's been the center of this argument. Mm -hmm. And you've seen uh, AOC way on the other side and others way on the other side. You know, to me, I look at the data. I look at the data and I see uh, I see the voter registration. Number one thing I look at during the pandemic, voter registration wasn't happening to, to what we were just talking about. Democrats weren't organizing in person for the first time over the four year cycle. Republicans were registering more voters than Democrats during that mm-hmm. period. And then the George Floyd murder happens. That video comes out on a Wednesday in late May. Uh, the next day, demonstrations begin around the country. I look at that next day, that Friday after seeing uh, Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta and Killer Mike on TV saying, we need to demonstrate, but we also need to vote. We need to register. So I, I'm a data guy. I look at the early vote in Georgia the next day because they were voting for their primary. I saw that the turnout just one day later among uh, voters under the age of 30 and African-American voters doubled the next mm-hmm. day. We know that. We take a step back. We see voter registration nationally now that we can look at the whole perspective. During that two-week period, end of May, beginning of June, there was suddenly a huge spike and suddenly Democrats are out registering Republicans during that period. And that was the spark. You fast forward to the Trump campaign's efforts to demonize that that issue in the suburbs and talk about what you're seeing in these demonstrations is going to come to the suburbs. We look at the results. We see that didn't work. The suburbs swung wildly away from Donald Trump. We see in the exit polls that the Black Lives Matter movement had double digit net favorability nationally and in key states like Georgia. It was plus 13 in Georgia. And Joe Biden won among those voters by by a two to one margin. So you have all that data aside. And then you look at the other side of the issue uh, that did that issue play negatively in Republican areas? Well, certainly there are some positions. It it would not be news that some more progressive positions don't play well with Republicans. (laughs) Republicans didn't like to talk about racial inequality. They did. So, yeah, I I think they're right in saying it didn't play well in some of these districts. But then it comes down to, well, look, if we define our policies as a country, as a party, based on only what plays in the most conservative districts that we have to win in because they're so gerrymandered or the the Electoral College, uh, which also has this institutional bias or the Senate, which also has this inherent bias. uh, Look, then 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 we're not uh, representing our ideals in any sense. So I think what it comes down to is that these campaigns needed to do a better job of connecting with their voters and their own brand. It's not to say that we can't, look, we can have, we're a big tent party. We can have Democratic candidates who represent more conservative ideals winning in these districts. But to say that the whole party has to shift to that lowest common denominator is absurd. So I'm left with the takeaway that it's on those campaigns and us as a party broadly to help those campaigns 
to uh, to connect with voters uh, in such a way where uh, we're inoculated from those attacks, which frankly were absurd and had nothing to do with the races in those uh, hmm. specific districts. So so I'm not I'm, I'm not criticizing, to be clear, the DCCC or the DNC in the end, you know, the strength of the party has been to run strong campaigns that are tailored to our communities. And I think that's something that we need to, to continue to do if we're going to be successful because we have these institutional challenges. So I want to break this down a little bit because I'm sure you saw AOC's article in the New York Times last week calling Democrats out for what she believed were bad campaigns as the main reasons why House Democrats in particular underperformed. Is there credence to her critique that many House Democratic campaigns, digital operations, and their voter contact was not up to par given the kind of Republican turnout that Trump on the ballot creates for Republican candidates. I actually say that this version of her critique is actually fair and true. So I I, I don't want to criticize the individual campaigns not being familiar with what they did. But again, I would say if you're a Democrat in a conservative district, the challenge for you and the way you win is by establishing your relationship with your with your electorate, with the voters in your district. And the way you do that is by running smart campaigns. You see what people like AOC have done and the way she won, right? By running a very smart campaign that was connected to the voters of her district. Would that have worked in Southwestern Virginia? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and, and what worked uh, in Southwestern Virginia wouldn't work in her district, right? So, um, you, you know, again, I'm just left with that conclusion that to the extent there are concerns about these more national issues. Look, this was a really challenging environment to run a campaign in. Well, you, you, you have a global pandemic, an economic crisis uh, happening at the same time in the midst of this social justice movement, which has moved to the forefront of the news more so than it has in quite some time. And for these campaigns to be able to get their message through was more challenging. But I think that's her point, probably, is if you're running this targeted sort of campaign and you are connecting with the voters, then you're able to overcome that. And so I do think we broadly have some lessons to learn and should be listening more to the congresswoman and and, and to others who have been successful uh, to that end, not necessarily in adopting all of her policy issues, but learning from her tactics. Correct. And I, the last thing in digging in is I want to talk about this issue that you brought up earlier, Black Lives Matter and defund the police and its impact on Democratic campaigns. I, I'm going to play the clip from Jim Clyburn. That phrase, defund the police, cost Jamie Harrison tremendously. Now, I'm not saying it was the only problem. And I have a hard time believing that defund had an impact on the voters, Clyburn suggests particularly these South Carolina voters, it it sounds like he just doesn't like the phrase, which is fine. I think the phrase is piss poor and there's no way to prove what he's saying. You had a thread on Twitter about this the other day, but what does the data say about how voters responded to defund on its face? What's your reaction to Clyburn's comments regarding Jamie's race in defund? Well, you know, again, all the data that we have whether it's the voter registration data, the turnout data, the historic turnout from African-American voters, voters of color in general, the fact that suburban voters, and when you see the swing, right, when when you look at the polling, Black Lives Matter was a very unpopular movement, or at least not very popular movement until May of this year, right? And then that changed. Uh, and Trump saw that, and he knew he had to attack in the suburbs, and he failed, right? There are a lot of suburban voters in South Carolina. That's the data we have. Again, the exit polls show uh, a majority of the electorate believe that the number two issue in the national exit polls, and they asked voters, what was the most important issue to your vote? Number one was the economy, not surprisingly. Number two 
was racial inequality. Number two, Mm -hmm. the number two issue, it was ahead of the coronavirus pandemic. And among those voters, Joe Biden won overwhelmingly. So I guess what I'm left with is you can't throw out the good, the benefit that Democrats got nationally uh, from that. And then without also, you know, considering the the flip side, which Congressman Clyburn is doing. And I certainly defer to Congressman Clyburn and his knowledge of of South Carolina. Uh, I mean, I'm from South Carolina as well. Let me just tell you, I think it's reductive because it doesn't allow our party to build and, and fix the mistakes we made to simply say that defund the police is the reason that we lost. But, you know, we'll, we'll have that debate and hopefully have an autopsy, which most states and most of these districts need to do and look in and dig through the numbers instead of saying the sloganeering caused us to lose by by 10 points. Right. Well, and there just isn't evidence of that. So it's, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, I deal with data and I haven't seen the evidence that it did hurt us. And generally the people, the voters who tend to have been turned off by by that issue in general, we're not going to vote we're for, vote us, for anyway. us anyway. Yeah. So my last couple of questions for you as we get near the end, I know that you are an adjunct professor at Howard University and Howard University is having the absolute best year of any HBCU in recent history. But before I let you go, what do you know about the Biden coalition and how much different it was than the Obama coalition? Well, I think, you know, it's the fascinating thing and we're going to we're going to be digging into this a lot deeper. But we do have, again, some early data to suggest, you know, one of the big challenges of 2016 and, and why we didn't win in 2016 was Democrats failed to reassemble that Obama coalition. Right. Mm-hmm. We saw it in 2008 we th- and we saw it in 2012, slightly different between those election years. But it was this broad national coalition. And then we saw the numbers change, you know, uh, especially turnout among younger African-American men dropped in 2016. Uh, there was a failure to connect with some of these core Democratic constituencies. The early data we have at this point is very encouraging in showing that that Obama coalition, at least we were much closer to reassembling that coalition. And it was a move back in that right direction. I mean, look, turnout surged among every demographic group broadly. It's just a question of which surge by more or less. But when you look at the turnout, I was struck by the turn just in the early vote where we saw, especially among African-American seniors, another group that actually dropped off. It was sort of at both ends of the age spectrum among African-American voters in 2016. African-American voters in Georgia, just in the early vote, more of them turned out than turned out in all of the 2016 election, mm. which is just crazy. That happened in a bunch of states. So, again, the early evidence is that coalition came back together to a larger extent. I think the biggest issue in terms of some parts that weren't there were, were largely among uh, Latino voters. And th- that's not to to point at that and say um, to put any blame on that community, more it's to put the onus on us as Democrats to be smarter about our research and analysis and communication with those communities and recognizing uh, that we're not talking about a monolithic community. Do you think it's durable enough to, to go into Georgia or to do well in the 2022 midterm elections with the coalition that we have built now based on what you've seen? Or are you saying that we just need to strengthen our flank with Hispanic voters or what needs to be done to ensure that we go into 2022 with the, in a strong position with this new Biden coalition, which I also think added a new layer of older, whiter voters? Yes. Yeah. Seniors, uh, the, the Biden campaign called it the Boomer Zoomer coalition, that they had this great turnout from younger voters, which clearly materialized. But then they did better with seniors. And we saw seniors, voters over the age of 65. This was more likely to be voters of color. But uh, who had never voted in their lives and voted for the first time in this election. So, um, yeah, I, look, it's going to be tricky. There's a lot of work because a lot of these voters have uh, I, either, again, not voted before 
and made a habit of not voting. And so do we turn them back out or was this one moment in time? And then a lot of the coalition is these voters who have traditionally voted Republican. And was this just this one moment for them about getting rid of Trump? And then they'll go back home to the party. I think a lot of that will depend on what the Republican Party does. There's no evidence at this point. It's obviously very early. There's no evidence that they have any intention of going back and, and bringing things back uh, from the edge where, where Trump took them. But I think that'll be a key question uh, for them to answer as well. Well, Tom, I can just say thank you. This was a whole lot of information in a short period of time. And it's I know that if we bring you back in a, you know, three, six months, we'll have even more information that we can dig in on. I look forward to seeing your tweets, but also look forward to seeing what we're going to have in Georgia in a couple of weeks, 70 days, I think. So, yeah, mail voting starts there. Mail ballots will go out a week from today. So we have a oh, lot wow. of data coming in real <laughs> soon already. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to everybody at Target Smart. Shout out to HU um, and shout out to you, Tom. Have a blessed day, brother. Thank you. Before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to share one more thing that's been on my mind, and that's the recent news around a COVID vaccine. In case you missed the news, pharmaceutical drug company Pfizer announced this week that 90% of the people who received this trial vaccine did not contract COVID. You heard that right, 90%. The baseline effectiveness rate that the FDA is looking for is 50%. And for comparison, the average flu shot any given year ranges from 40% to 60%. So a 90% effectiveness rate is a big deal. What's also a big deal? Pfizer didn't take any money from the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed in the development of this vaccine, and they made the right call announcing this information after the election. So political pressure from the Trump administration didn't weigh into these results. And come January, we'll have a competent administration actually distributing these vaccines. So what's next? We should expect an emergency approval from the FDA before the end of the year with limited distribution to healthcare workers and other high-risk populations like seniors in early 2021. By mid-2021, we should anticipate broader public access. Here's what I want to know and questions that I think we all need answers to within the next few weeks. How many times do you need to get the shot in order for it to be effective? For people who get the shot but still contract COVID, are the symptoms less severe? What are the side effects there? And are there any particular populations that over-index with these side effects? When will it be safe for children to take the vaccine is a question I know I want to know along with so many of you. And how representative were your trials and in including people of color? The good news is as a part of the Biden-Harris COVID plan, they intend to release the public clinical trial information like this. And we know that science and not politics will dictate how the vaccine is further developed and distributed under a Biden-Harris administration. And that's something we should all welcome. And that's that on that. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Next week, we'll have my sister and This Is Us star, Susan Kelechi Watson, on with us on Monday's episode. And I promise you won't want to miss it.